Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and thank you that uh, your word points us to the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we read it, as we consider it, now uh, we ask that your spirit would be uh, uh, pointing us to him uh, and uh, enabling us to appreciate more and more what he's done for us. So that we would love him more and more and obey him more and more as well. We pray this in his name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, uh, those of you who have been with us will know that we've been looking together at 1 Samuel. Two weeks ago, we reviewed the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, and we saw how Israel needed a particular kind of godly leader. And we saw that how the leaders that they had, one by one, were not adequate to the task. But instead of trusting God, they demanded a king, so they could be like the other nations. And God gave them Saul, the king they asked for. Although he started off well, Saul ended up disobeying God, because he didn't really trust him either. His heart was somewhere far from God. And so God rejected him as king and sought for a man after his own heart to lead his people. Last week we saw how God provided a king for himself in 1 Samuel 16. God told Samuel to secretly anoint David, a shepherd boy, and the Spirit of God left Saul and rushed upon David. And so David became the anointed one. We noted that Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek both mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. And so David was God's chosen Messiah at the time. He was hidden in the sense that his identity as chosen king was unknown. But he was no less God's promised king who would eventually take over the kingdom. And in the meantime, David found himself in the court of Saul, playing the lyre to soothe Saul's mood whenever he was disturbed by an evil spirit. Now, we don't know how long this arrangement lasted for, although it seems likely that it was an intermittent thing. For here in chapter 17, David is back in his father's house, and Saul is out on the battlefield. It may be that Saul's fits were sporadic, so that when he was feeling fine, he let the boy go home. It may be that because Saul was going to the battlefield, David, not being old enough, was given leave to go back to his dad. Or it could be, as some people think, that this is a flashback to between the two halves of chapter 16. Uh, could be, but doesn't need to be, so it probably isn't. doesn't really matter either way. Here in chapter 17, the narrator gives us what was probably one of the most important turning points in David's life. This is the event that catapults him to fame, that makes him a household name in Israel, and lays the groundwork for the popular support that will eventually make him king. Now it's a familiar story to many of us, not to all of us, but to many of us. But let's not let the familiarity rob us of the very important lesson that God wants to drive home to us in this story. So, if you know the story well, try to forget that you know it. Right? Make an effort to listen to it again with fresh ears. 
The first scene we have in this passage is a big picture one. It's like we're at the movies and we have a panoramic shot of two armies. Verse 1 of chapter 17 tells us the Philistine forces were in Israelite territory and they camped between two villages, Sokoth and Azekar, which are in the valley of Elah. The uh, Israelite forces were also in the valley of Elah. But they weren't both at the bottom of the valley. In fact, neither were. They were on opposite mountain sides of the valley, facing each other. And so the picture we have in verse 3 is the Philistines camped on the mountain side, on one side, the Israelites on the other, and the bottom of the valley between them. So they're facing each other, across the valley underneath. Now, the next scene zooms in on the camp of the Philistines. And as the camera zooms in closer, we see a man coming out of the camp. And he's a big man. A big, big man. A big, big, big man. Whose height, verse 4, was six cubits and a span, more than nine feet. He's even bigger than Raj. I think we can call him the giant. His name was Goliath. He came from Gath, a Philistine city west of Elah. And not only was he big, he was heavily armored. Uh, Chapter 17, verses 5 to 7, just listen to how they describe it. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, he was armed with a coat of mail, the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, he had bronze armor on his leg, a javelin of bronze slung between his soldiers, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Now, that might not seem so terribly exciting to us, but back in those days, that was state-of-the-art weaponry. So we've got this huge warrior in the latest armor. No wonder he was so confident. Confident enough to issue a dare in verses 8 to 10. He says, Why have you come out to draw up to battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. He said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And you can understand why in verse 11 that Saul and all Israel were dismayed. And greatly afraid. Saul had particular reason to be afraid. He was their king. He was the one responsible for leading them into battle. He was also the tallest man in Israel. We're told back in chapter 9 that he was a head higher than anyone else. So someone had to fight Goliath and surely it ought to be him. But frankly, he would never hope. It would be a suicidal mission. Israel would stand there and watch her king get his head chopped off. And then leaderless, he would face a crushing defeat from the Philistines. 
Saul was inadequate. Israel needed a leader and a savior. But if not Saul, who? There was no one equal to the task. And it's at this point the narrator of the story introduces us to David. Now, of course, we've met David before, but this is his public unveiling, as it were. And so we get an introduction to David and his family again. David is the son of Jesse, who by now, in verse 12, is already old. Which means he's probably over 40 or something like that. Huh? Jesse had eight sons, and David was the youngest. His oldest three brothers, verse 14, followed Saul into battle. David's job at the time, was too young for that, was to look after his dad's sheep back at Bethlehem. So he went back and forth from Saul. Sometimes he was there, sometimes he was back home. Now, this standoff between Israel and the Philistines had actually been going on for 40 days. Every morning, every evening, Goliath the Philistine will come out and mock the Israelites. And every morning, every evening, he would go unanswered. Now, for 40 days of standoff, you'll need some provisions, won't you? And in that context, it was the families who made sure their own kids had supplies. And so Jesse sent David to the battleground with some food for his brothers. He sent, verse 17, an epaph, is about 22 liters of parched grain and 10 loaves. And very prudently, he also sent a gift for their boss in verse 18. I didn't have chocolate back then, so he sent cheese. And he told David to try and get some news from them. And so David headed out from Bethlehem to the valley of Elah, where they were. He got up early in the morning left the sheep with the keeper, took the supplies he'd been given, did what his father said. And when he got to the battleground, he could hear the noise of the soldiers. Right? If you were in Ampang today, you probably heard a noise something like that. Right? I was uh, here uh, at the cathedral on the day of the Bursa demonstration uh, a couple of weeks ago. And when I came to my car in the car park, I could hear a loud noise of the crowd. Oh! I couldn't see anyone except police and FIU personnel. I think they were probably in Masjid Jamek. So it was quite a distance, but you could hear the noise. You know, large crowds. So David arrives, he hears the war cries. He hears the sound of many men shouting. And when he got closer, he could see Israel and the Philistines lined up for battle, facing each other across the valley. So what does he do? He leaves his stuff for the keeper of the baggage, verse 22, and he runs to meet his brothers. This is very exciting. And, he starts, and as he starts to talk to them, Goliath comes out to say his peace. And the boy David hears what he says. Well, the Israel army do what they've been doing for the last 40 days. They're backing down in fear. And as they cower, they talk. The camera zooms in on a few men talking. Have you seen this man who has come up in verse 25? 
Surely he has come out to defy Israel. And you know, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Wow. Riches, king's daughter in marriage, tax exemption, or perhaps exemption from royal service. The whole family. Pretty good rewards. But pretty safe for the king to offer too, isn't it? Because anyone who challenged Goliath was probably going to come back in a body bag. David stands beside some other men in the camp and he asked them two questions. First of all, he asked, verse 26, the man who kills Goliath, he says, we'll take away the reproach of Israel. So what's his reward? And second question is, who does this Philistine think he is anyway? He's uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine, outside the covenant, not an inheritor of God's promises, not one of God's people. And he dares, verse 26, defy the armies of the living God. People answered David's first question, told him what the reward was for killing Goliath, but no response to the second question. Some people might have been taken aback. Some people might have even been impressed with, with David's conviction. But not Eliab, David's older brother. In fact, he gets annoyed with his little kid brother talking big. He gets angry with him, verse 28. And he says, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? <laughs> I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. David, you belong with a sheep. Not even many sheep, just a few. You're a little shepherd boy. You're so audacious to come here and talk big to us. The only reason you come down is to come and gawk at the men as we try and fight this battle. And What are you doing? And David responds with a typical little brother thing. What have I done now? Was it not but a word? Can't I say anything? So David was underestimated, despised, rejected by his brother, who thought he knew him, but really didn't. And David went on to talk to other groups of men. Asking the same questions, getting the same answers, making the same waves. And eventually the word got back to Saul that David was saying all these things and Saul called David up. And David spoke to Saul about Goliath. He says in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Now, Saul wasn't convinced by this idea. This is you. You're a kid. You're no match for a professional soldier. He says, verse 33, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But then, David says that he's no ordinary kid. He says, verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. 
And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard. Just imagine catching it by his beard. And struck him and killed him. Wow. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Now, we know that David is God's anointed one. God's chosen leader for his people. So the lion and the bear would have been practice, if you like, for a much bigger task. Furthermore, David's care and protection of his sheep would be a foreshadowing of his care and his protection of God's people when he was king. But Saul didn't know all this. He's just impressed by David's feats. But David continues confidently in verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He's confident. But his confidence is not in himself. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knew it was God who saved him. The one who rescued him from the lion, from the bear, would rescue Israel from Goliath. And he knew that he could only do so because God was with him. He had rescued the lamb from these wild animals. He would rescue God's people from this giant man because God rescue would rescue him from them See, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine so with God on his side David was confident of beating Goliath and Saul was finally convinced God had been using this young boy and maybe, just maybe, this boy was God's solution to the Philistine problem. And if, it was half a, if there was half a chance that he was right, it was worth taking it. Because otherwise there's no chance at all. And Saul gave David his permission. Go, he said, and the Lord be with you. Now Saul didn't want David to fail. His life, the lives of the Israelites, depended on him. And so he wanted to give him the best possible chance. And so in verse 38, Saul put his own armor on David. A bronze helmet, a mail coat, a sword. But the problem was David wasn't used to them. He hadn't tested them. He hadn't proved them. And he was reluctant to go with them. And in the end he said to Saul, I can't take them. I'm sorry. I took them off. Because he knew how God in the past had used him without all this stuff. Normal weapons of warfare would just impede him. Normal armor of defense would just slow him down and distract him. He would fight the battle with different weapons. His deliverer would be God alone. So David put his sword down and once again picked up his shepherd's staff, which was really just a long stick. He would go into this battle as a shepherd, not as a warrior went to a nearby brook 
chose five smooth stones and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Right, nowadays you have pouches to carry mobile phones, right? Back then the shepherds had pouches to carry other things and put the stones in there. So with a stick in one hand, sling in the other, walk from behind the Israelite lines to approach the Philistine. From afar, Goliath must have been pleased that he finally had someone to challenge him. And he in turn came out from the Philistine camp with a shield bearer in front of him for defense. But as he got closer, he got a better view of what Israel had sent out to fight him. And he couldn't believe his eyes. Here he was, top class warrior, nine feet tall, with state of the art weaponry. And the Israelites had sent out a boy with a stick and a sling. Can you think of anything more ridiculous than that? Now, the kid, it says, was good looking and red faced. But this was a serious battle, not a beauty contest. What were the Israelites trying to do? Insult him? And so he began to shout at David from afar, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. But he wasn't going to go light on David just because he was a boy. You teach him and the Israelites a lesson or two. Come to me, verse 44, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Well, he could shout and threaten. But David could shout and threaten too. And when he did, he told the Philistine why he was so confident. Verse 45. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. See, this was not just David versus Goliath. It was God versus the one who challenges him. When Goliath comes against David, he's coming as the Philistine. When David comes against Goliath, he's coming as the anointed one. He is coming in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Almighty God who is more powerful than anything or anyone. See, when you think about the giant Goliath, a boy with a stick and a sling doesn't seem very impressive. But when you think about Almighty God, the creator and ruler of the universe, a nine-foot man with a sword and spear of javelin seems even less impressive. It all depends on your perspective. And friends, that's always true, isn't it? The world often seems so impressive to us. Ways of the world so powerful and therefore sometimes so attractive. And you always want to be on the side that's most powerful, whatever side that is. There's an attraction there. We are little people beside others whose power and influence are far, far greater. And we are tempted to fall in behind them. Depending on where we work or study or live, those temptations will be different. 
In fact, these powerful people all believe different things. They'll do different things. And so the temptations will be to follow them in different ways. But the answer is always the same. It's all a matter of perspective. Put them beside us and we're pretty weak and unimpressive. Put God into the picture and they they are practically nothing. All we've got to do is make sure that we stay on God's side. Yes, we may suffer now, we may well be disadvantaged now, but in the end we'll win. You can't mess with God like Goliath and hope to win in the end. David knows that God is with him. He is the anointed one, sent to rescue Israel. And so he has confidence, not in his weapons, but in his God. And he responds to the Philistine in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Well, the contestants are introduced, speeches are made, they've thrown their insults to each other across the valley, and all that remains is the battle. It's a bit like the that wrestling you see on TV, isn't it? Philistine stepped forward, walked towards David. David runs towards him. Puts his hand in his bag, takes out a stone, puts it in a sling. And you know the song? One little stone went into the sling, the sling went round and round, and one little stone. The stone goes flying towards the Philistine. Hits him on the forehead. Sinks into his head like a bullet. And the Philistine fell to the ground. And remember, David's got no sword. So he runs to the Philistine, takes the Philistine's own sword, and he uses it to cut off his own head. Well, the Philistine's head. So he's he's a boy, you see. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they ran away. And the Israelites rose with a shout. They chased the Philistines all the way back to their cities of Ekron and Gath. And so all the way from the battlefield to the cities, uh, bodies of wounded or dead Philistines are strewn. And when the people of Israel came back from that, they go back to the valley and they plunder the Philistine camp. Because God had given them a great victory. And David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, put the Philistine's armor and kept it in his tent. Spoils of that victory. And then in verse 55 to 58 of the chapter, the last little scene there, that's definitely a flashback. And it flashes back to when David is walking out to meet the Philistine. And Saul turns to Abner, his army commander, and says, Whose son is he? He Saul knew David, but he didn't know his family. We might have forgotten. If he lives, 
and he kills the Philistine, Saul needs to know the father of the man he's pledged his daughter to. And if he dies, he needs to know where to send the body. Abner doesn't know. He says, Saul tells him to find out, but he doesn't need to do much work to find out because David makes it back alive and Abner brings him to Saul and Saul again asks him the same question. David, whose son are you, young man? And David answered in verse 58, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's who I am. And that's the end of the story. Well, it's a great story, isn't it? Kids love to hear it over and over. Beth, my little daughter, loves to hear this story. Keeps on telling that story again. But what relevance does it have to us? And she likes that stone, that slinging, that song bit. Oh, sing it, Daddy, sing it. Okay, what's the relevance to us? What do we learn from the passage? Well, we can learn from David's example to trust God, can't we? We do need to trust God. But we've got to be careful here. Because it doesn't mean that we can do anything and fight any battle if we trust God. That God will give us whatever victory we ask for, no matter how improbable, if only we'll step out in faith like David. Because you see, it's not as if any Israelite from the Israelite army could have defeated Goliath if they trusted God like David. David was different from the rest of the Israelites because he was the anointed one. God's spirit was upon him. God had empowered him to save the lambs from the lion and the bears. And as the anointed one, the one to whom the kingdom was promised by God, God was going to save his people through him. So yes, we can follow David's example in trusting God, but we need to trust God to do what he's promised. Not necessarily just what we want him to do. Does that make sense? We can also learn negatively from the example of Goliath. Well, there's no point trusting in strength or technology if you're fighting the living God. Well, people do it all the time. Authorities in some countries think they can persecute the church and get away with it because they seem to be so powerful. Individuals oppress God's people and seek to hinder the growth of the gospel because they think that God will not stand behind it. But he does, and he will, and ultimately they will come to a terrible end. Like a life. We're also reminded here to keep a proper perspective on things. Whenever we face trials or troubles, it's important to take into account the presence of God. When we're tempted to go along with the world, it's important to realize that, that popularity in the world means antagonism to God. And He's far higher, He's far more powerful. So, if we're on God's side, then one plus God is majority. And in the end, if God is with us, who can stand against us? So we can learn all those things. Yet none of them is the main point of the passage. They illustrate points that are true and helpful to remember, but none of them is the main reason why God gave us this passage in his word. Because think about the narrative. We ask ourselves, where do we fit in the story? Who 
whose example is there really for us? Who are we like here? We like David? Well, he's the anointed one of God. Who does David point forward to? Us? Who does David point forward to? Jesus. That's right. He points forward to Jesus, the son of David, the truly anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, God's ultimate king. David's life, even as we saw last week, is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And if David points forward to Jesus, who stands in relation to David in this story like we do to Jesus? Whose connection to David in this story is like our connection to Jesus? Well, surely it's the people's, isn't it? Israel of old were God's people under God's king. And we are God's people under God's king, the Lord Jesus. So where we find ourselves in this story is not in David, but in the men of Israel. We are like the armies of Israel, threatened by the enemy, facing certain death, unable to help ourselves, cowering before the enemy. And then saved by the coming of a saviour to participate in a great victory. David points forward to Jesus, God's king. But before he could be king, David would first become their saviour. And he saved his people by being their representative. He represented his people. He fought on their behalf against the enemy. And David looked unlikely. He was even despised and rejected by his brother as being pretentious and stupid. His weapons were not the weapons of power. And yet he trusted God. Despite all the odds. Because he knew that he was God's anointed one. And through him God won a big battle for his people. And because of that victory, because he was saviour, he would ultimately be king. And friends, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Jesus was God's promised king. But before he could be king, he would first become our saviour. And he saved us, his people, by being our representative. He fought the battle against sin, the world, the devil, on our behalf. He fought for us against the enemy. He did what we could never do. We could never have defeated Satan ourselves. We could never have won the victory over sin. But by his perfect life and his death on the cross in our place, he represented us. He stood there instead of us. And he won the victory on our behalf. Like Jesus, David was despised. Sorry, like David, Jesus was despised and rejected by his brothers. His family underestimated him. So did his town. So did his nation. He came to his own and his own esteemed him not. And he looked so unlikely when he went out for battle. His weapons were not the weapons of power. The only thing that looks more ridiculous 
than a boy trying to fight a giant with a stick. He's a man trying to save the world by hanging on a cross. Yet he did. For when he died on the cross, the perfect man, who had lived the perfect life, took our sin and our guilt. He took the punishment on our behalf so we can be forgiven. He bore the full judgment for our sin so God could forgive us justly. And because we have been rightly and justly forgiven, that Satan, the accuser, cannot accuse us anymore. There is no condemnation. And the devil has no more power, no more leverage over us. We have been taken out of his dominion and given a new life in Christ. And he cannot terrify us with death and judgment anymore because it's settled by Christ. And so just like David won the victory for Israel, Jesus won the victory for us. For he trusted in God. He knew he was God's anointed one and God would see him through. So, yes, going to Jerusalem to be crucified looked foolish. Like going out to Goliath the way David did look foolish. But like David, Jesus knew he was God's anointed. And through him, God won the big battle for his people. And the proof of that was in the resurrection. Where God brought Jesus back from the dead in victory. And because of that victory, because he is saviour, he would ultimately be king. Like Jesus... David had been sent to the battleground by his father. And the victory of David raised the question, whose son is he? The question that Saul asked as David went out. And that victory of Jesus, read in the light of this, raises the same question, whose son is he? And the answer of the New Testament comes loud and clear. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That is Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, our Lord. Whose Son is he? You are the Christ, Simon Peter says, the Anointed One the Son of the Living God. And so friends, the main thing we learn from this passage is not about trusting God like David or not opposing him like Goliath. Those are incidental things that we've rightly noticed as we went along. And it's certainly not about how God favors the underdog or about giants in our lives we can kill with five smooth stones of faith, hope and love and two other things you may care to dream up, which are not in the passage at all. What we really learn the main point of this passage is that the Christ that is the Messiah the Anointed One saves God's people by representing them in battle. He saves God's people by representing them. And just as David was Christ for Israel Jesus is Christ for us. Like Israel we needed our Saviour King and now we learn that his victory was won for us. We learn from this passage to depend on him. 
That in and of ourselves we could not save ourselves from our enemies of sin and Satan and death and hell. But that Jesus Christ faced them for us. And fought the battle on our behalf. The anointed one has won the victory. The lamb has conquered. Salvation belongs to him. The one who saved us is now king. We knew he was David's son. And now we know he is God's son. And so we fall on our faces and worship him and say, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Not only that you saved your people of Israel back in those days, but that you have saved us through your anointed one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you gave him to represent us, to rescue us from what we could in no way have saved ourselves from. We thank you that he fought the battle on our behalf. That he lived that perfect life for us. That he died on the cross for us. And that he rose again in victory. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in him. Help us, Lord, to always rejoice in that. Rejoice in what he's achieved. And always look to him as our representative. Help us to trust him and to follow him and love him as our saviour and as our king. We pray this in his name. Amen. We've been reminded today that we all have a dreadful enemy, far more powerful than any one of us. But though Satan is strong, we do not fear him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. We stand to sing a hymn from the 16th century. Our mighty fortress is our God. <laughs>